Hello, explorers. Welcome along. I was thinking we could spend some time between now and Christmas by having just a very quick journey all around the universe. What do you say? Welcome along to a very special Christmassy episode of the Fun Kids Science Weekly. My name's Dan. Thank you so much for listening and for following and for sharing, being there with us all year. Now, this week, we're actually learning about one of my favourite parts of the year. Every December, the Royal Institution, who are a group of very, very smart people, they put on talks on the telly called their Christmas Lectures, which sounds very grand. Lecture can be a serious word. But really, it's just a chat about a mind-blowing topic that's really important right now, and it helps you think differently about it. This year, it's all about artificial intelligence. We're going to tackle the hopes and fears. We're going to talk about, you know, how might things actually go wrong? How, what should we actually be concerned about? We're going to encounter some real AI robots, not the robots that you see in the movies, but some actual real AI robots. And then at the end, we're going to ask the big question, could AI actually be like us? And what would that mean? And we'll take a look at the science of Christmas to learn about the tech that helps Santa deliver presents faster every year. One of the problems we have is the weight of all the toys. Certainly makes life hard for our reindeers. So we have been experimenting with a reversible thermodynamic processor, a sort of nano toy maker known as the Magic Sack. This creates toys for good girls and boys as Santa is travelling, significantly cutting down on the overall weight of the sleigh. The magic sack uses carbon-based soot from chimneys and chemicals you humans have put into the atmosphere to make the toys en route. And I've got your questions this week, both on space, one on stars, the other on why it's so chilly. It's coming up in a brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly. Let's kick things off with your science in the news. Now, the COP28 Climate Summit has been happening in Dubai recently. Leaders from all around the world have been trying to decide what to do about climate change. And for the first time, a deal has been made that calls on countries to move away from fossil fuels, but not to stop using them completely. So that is some good news, but many people think that it's not enough to help cool the world and limit temperatures as our planet gets hotter and more needs to be done right now to try and help the planet. And really, it's just important people talking in a room for a couple of weeks. Also, the Geminids meteor shower, famous for its multicoloured streaks of light, swept across the sky last week. Now, in perfect conditions, uh, you can spot 100 to 120 meteors per hour. NASA, the American space people, they call the Geminids one of the year's best and most reliable annual meteor showers. Meteor showers are typically caused by a comet, but the Geminids are celestial debris, stuff scattered around the world that's been left over by a rocky asteroid known as 3200 Phaethon. I love that our knowledge of the world and the universe is so sophisticated now. We can tell that at a particular time, every single year, asteroids will swoop around the Earth. How mind-blowing is it to be living when we do and we know so much? And also, this is pretty incredible, a man is setting off to pull a rocking horse across Antarctica to the South Pole to raise money for charity. Josh Braid from the UK is raising funds for Rocking Horse, which is a charity which supports babies and children, and also an anti-bullying charity called Kidscape. It's got a big task. He'll begin by climbing Mount Vincent, which is the highest peak in Antarctica, and then he's going to pull a rocking horse all the way to the South Pole. Uh, I bet it's cold enough right now around Christmas. Imagine going all the way to the South Pole. 
I mean, Father Christmas doesn't even live there. He's the other end of the world. But what a brilliant idea from Josh. I hope he raises loads of cash for charity. Let's check in with Benny and Mal there. These are our micro pals. They live normally inside our gut and they help you digest food and fight infections. They keep your immune system up. But also Benny and Mal are very smart. They are helping us with ethical dilemmas. These are big decisions about the world around us where it might be right and it might be wrong. This week, Benny and Mal are looking at artificial limbs because there are benefits of helping the elderly or the injured. But who gets to decide who has bionic upgrades and should we upgrade babies too benny and mal's body teasers with support from the nuffield council on bioethics well you know we were watching that film about pirates mal said he wouldn't mind trying out a wooden leg like the pirate captain had but i said that there is a bit more to think about when it comes to artificial limbs And like I've been saying, surely everyone can agree that artificial limbs are brilliant. End of. They help people without hands to pick things up and help people without legs to get about and even run. You're thinking of those guys at the Paralympics, right? Those cool blades? Yes. To be honest, I was thinking of them too. Now, how on earth can science used in a helpful way like that be wrong? Nothing wrong with those examples. No one's going to argue with that. But sometimes a dilemma is created when you think about where things are going. Well, if it's one of them fellas at the Paralympics on those blades, they're going 100 metres, normally in a straight line towards the finish. All right, but what if technology gets so amazingly advanced that artificial limbs allow you to run faster than a typical athlete? Say, 100 miles an hour. Well, that would be brilliant. Although, would that mean they could only run against other super-fast blade runners? Hmm... Wouldn't be fair to put them in a race against, well, anyone that hasn't got them, I suppose. You see, it's already not quite as simple as you thought. Definitely a dilemma. But that's okay. You haven't convinced me it's a bad idea yet, though, these 100 miles per hour blades. Having their own sports event wouldn't be the end of the world, would it? All right. What if your artificial leg could carry additional technology like the internet or even weapons? Whoa, whoa, whoa. You've gone a country mile there. One minute we're talking about helping someone get around and now we're discussing a robo-runner. Well, constraints of time, mate. Okay, what if babies could have their legs replaced with artificial limbs when they were born? All right, Benny, my old mate. What if the legs meant no one would ever get tired and old people wouldn't need walking sticks? What if it meant no more P.E.? Yeah, you didn't think about that one, did you? Fair points, Mal, and nice counter-arguments there. Thanks, Benny. Felt it was necessary. But I think that all we've managed to do is show that if we don't think carefully about things, then there's a chance we get... A hundred mile per hour babies with robo-gun legs! <laughs> we can get things turning out in a way we didn't want. Just takes a bit of thought now to really work out how we can best use the science and technology at our disposal. It's a brain-busting body bamboozler for sure. Sure is. Catch you next time. Benny and Mal's Body Teasers, with support from the Nuffield Council on Bioethics. Find out more at funkidslive.com slash Benny and Mal. 
what a better way to spend the Christmasy special of the Fun Kids Science Weekly uh, with all of us explorers than my favourite part, answering some of your questions. If you have anything sciencey that you want answered on the show, please make sure you leave it as a voice note over at funkidslive.com or on the free Fun Kids app. I can't wait to crack through some of them next year. This one has been sent to me by Hannah, who wants to know how many stars are there? Well, the exact number of stars in the universe, Hannah, is quite hard to figure out because space is so huge. Estimates suggest there are around 100 to 200 billion galaxies in the observable universe. So that's the universe that we know about. And in each of those galaxies could have billions of stars. A rough guess is that there are more than one septillion stars. That is a number with 24 zeros after it. And that's only a guess made by scientists using maths, really. There are parts of the universe that we can't even see, which means there might be even more stars there. Now, scientists can study stars with the Hubble Space Telescope, which has been looking across the universe for years. Now, the James Webb Space Telescope that we speak quite a lot about, that does the same. Experts look at the photos that they take. They put them into computers, which draw up a model with the information in the pictures to figure out how big the universe is. Now, we know in our galaxy, that's the Milky Way, there could be 400 billion stars in it. And if you think... The entire observable universe is, I think it's 100 billion light years wide. You take that number of stars in our galaxy and you try and figure out how many galaxies there would be. So we don't officially know they're Hannah, but experts guess there's about one septillion, which is one with 24 zeros after it. Thank you so much. Uh, This has been sent as a review of the show on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for this games mode who wants to know why is space so cold? Can't the scorching sun heat it up? Well, space is huge. (laughs) We've just said this, right? The observable universe, that's what we know, is almost 100 billion light years wide. So it's a huge space, and there's not a lot in it. Now, for something to have heat, it needs particles in it that can trap heat energy and pass it on. The problem is, in space, there's almost nothing. So there's nothing to hold that energy, there's nothing to pass it on. And get this, when the Big Bang happened, experts think it released some microwaves into the universe, which is still there today, and they still glow across the universe. The problem is, they are cold microwaves, they are frozen. It's like having a radiator on in your home set to the chilliest mode everywhere all the time it makes it freezing now here on earth we have an atmosphere with lots of gas and particles in it and that traps the sun's heat but other planets near stars might not have that atmosphere so none of the heat they get sticks around and that is why space is so cold at games mode thank you so much so Uh, Heading into the new year, I'd love your resolution to be you will send me a question as a voice note on the free Fun Kids app. You can do that at funkidslive.com if you find the Science Weekly page. And I would love to answer your questions and hear you star in our show next time. I'm so excited. Let's get to this week's Dangerous Dan there, where we're exploring the Americas Speaking about some of the most mean, weird, strange, deadly things around, this week we're taking a look at the southern flannel moth. And it's almost Christmassy. This creature is very hairy and hair is cosy, so I guess that could be Christmassy. And it's got a lot of names, like the Puss Caterpillar, the Woolly Slug, or the Fire Caterpillar. And, well, fires crackling are quite Christmassy. Anyway, the Puss Caterpillar, as a moth has got wild, distinctive colours. Browns and whites and oranges and greys. It looks a bit like a cat, which is how it gets the name Puss Caterpillar. 
As an adult moth, though, it's not too dangerous. When it's a baby caterpillar, when it's a larva, that's where things get sticky. It's covered in this thick fur, and that fur covers something else. In it are lots of tiny, stinging, venomous spines that cause extremely painful reactions. People who have been stung feel like it's burning. They get sick, they get rashes and blisters, they have trouble breathing. People who have been stung say it's like your bone has been broken. And it shows how amazing wildlife is. This tiny creature can do such an extreme amount of damage, cause such pain to us massive humans. That is why this furry, cute little caterpillar with a very dangerous hidden sting, the southern flannel moth, the puss caterpillar, the fire caterpillar, it's why it goes straight onto our dangerous Dan list. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly. Now, I get excited for this moment every single year, not just for Christmas, sure, but also to hear all about the Royal Institution's Christmas lectures. We do this every year. Very smart stuff that you will love. Now, this year, Professor Mike Waldridge is doing one about AI, artificial intelligence. He's a professor of it at the University of Oxford and joins us now. Mike, thank you for being there. Thank you for inviting me. Here's what I find amazing. To be a professor of something, surely you needed to study, to immerse yourself in this world for ages to become a full-on professor. But AI to me seems relatively new. When did you first think that this was something you are interested in and that AI might be the future for you? Well, it may seem that artificial intelligence is a new thing, but it really isn't. It's actually been studied since the 1950s. Now, I'm not that old, but I got interested in artificial intelligence when I was studying for my degree in the 1980s, and I started studying for my PhD, my doctorate in 1989, and I started studying AI because I just found it fascinating, and it's the only thing I've ever done since then. I've never done anything else. AI has been my life. Now, I have to tell you, for most of that time since then, it was a nice, quiet existence. Nobody bothered me. I didn't bother anybody else. But things started to go a little bit crazy in AI about 10 years ago. And then over the last year, my goodness, things have got very, very crazy. Why has it suddenly snowballed over the last year? In my time of doing this podcast, I remember the first few years of it. Yeah, we, 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 we spoke about AI, but it still seemed this far off idea that might happen. But as you say, over the last 12 months, bam, it's huge. Why is that, Mike? Well, so AI started to take off around about 10 years ago, because for the first time, AI started to work on some really interesting problems, like being able to translate from one language to another. This is something that AI researchers have literally been working on since the 1950s with relatively slow progress. But AI started to work on that problem and many other problems, problems at scale, as we say, in the business. And why did it start to work? Because it turns out that to make AI work on really interesting problems. You need lots and lots of data, what's called training data, in order to build the AI. You need lots and lots of computer power. And the computer power was just too expensive to make it feasible until recently. But now, in, you know, in the last decade, we've entered the age of big data. You know, every time you upload a picture of yourself on social media and you helpfully label it with your name, what you're doing is you're providing training data for the machine learning algorithms of the big technology companies. 
companies. So we're in the age of big data. We've got lots and lots of data available, which can be used for training AI, but also we're in the age of cheap computer power. Computer power is just much, much, much cheaper than it was even at the turn of the century. So it's those two ingredients in particular that have come together to make AI work over the last 10 years. But then in the last year, the new thing, uh, the thing that everybody's been talking about, obviously, is ChatGPT. And ChatGPT is what AI researchers call a large language model, which is a very unhelpful description of something. But what it's trying to do is to try to make its best guess about what you want to hear. So you give it a prompt, you type something in, and ChatGPT makes its best guess about what should come next. Now, in order to make that work, it turned out you needed huge, unimaginably huge amounts of data and unimaginably large amounts of computer power. And it really only became feasible to do that within the last year or two. So that's why there's been this sudden breakthrough that we've seen in the last year. Let's talk pros and cons then and start off by the good stuff. For you, what makes you most excited about AI and the benefits that it could have for us as humans? So the thing that I find most exciting, the thing that gets me out of bed in the morning is applications, for example, in healthcare. So we've now got AI systems that can recognize tumors, cancers on x-ray scans. We've got uh, uh, AI that can recognize abnormalities in fetuses, in pregnant women, babies in pregnant women. We've got AI that can help doctors to diagnose the causes of uh, heart disease and, and so on. And we're on the brink, I think, of a real revolution in healthcare that's being driven by artificial intelligence. And this is going to this is going to be so beneficial. It's going to affect so many lives. It's, it's going to improve the quality of life for so many people. And I think that's really wonderful and really exciting. And that is what I hold on to in amongst all the doomy discussions around AI. I know that there are those doomy discussions and I don't love focusing on them. But just while we have you, who is by far the, the smartest player in the AI game that I've ever spoken to, it would be a bit silly if I didn't ask you, what are, what are some things? that you might be worried about a little bit, just little ethical niggles perhaps that are in your brain when you're working with AI. What are you worried about? Well, one of the examples, we could talk about a number of these, but one of the examples is the problem of bias. So suppose you're a bank and you want to decide who gets a mortgage or a bank loan, which may not be something that your listeners are doing right now, but they surely will do within a few years or so. So what you do as the bank is you decide to build an AI program that decides who gets a bank loan and who doesn't. And the way that you do that is you train the program by showing it lots of examples of who got a bank loan and who didn't get a bank loan that the people that work for you have done. Now, the problem is if the people that work for you have got biases, for example, you know they don't like people who live in a certain part of a city or uh, they don't like people whose surnames begin with W, for example, you know, and they've decided not to give bank loans to those people, then the AI is going to pick up those biases. The AI doesn't know that the data is biased. It's simply going to reflect the biases that are present in the people that are providing the training data. So that issue, that problem of bias is a very real one. And I'm, it's, a, it's a problem which has got AI researchers very exercised over the last few years, because it would be terrible if we ended up with AI systems that 
simply reflected human biases and simply held up a mirror to existing human biases. We very much don't want that. Well, that's a lot easier to hear, I will say, Mike, than they're all coming to take over the world. Very quickly on that. So uh, Elon Musk, uh, the guy who did Tesla and now runs X, the website, one of the richest men in the world. He was in the news a little while ago saying that AI in the future will do all of our jobs. We never need to work again. What do you think about that conversation and whether it is needed and whether it is actually going to happen. So it's funny that the conversation around AI divides either into it's going to destroy us or it's going to just free us from the tyranny of labor. None of us are going to have to work. You know, AI will do everything for us. I don't think that's true. I don't think we're heading to a future where AI is going to do everything for us. I don't see AI replacing teachers. I don't see AI replacing doctors. I don't see AI replacing rock musicians. I've got no interest in going and seeing a rock musician on stage singing Ooh Baby Baby. I mean, that just doesn't do it for me. I want to see a human being who knows about the experiences that they they're singing about. So I don't think we're heading for a future, not anytime soon anyway, where AI is going to take our jobs. And the truth is, there are lots of jobs that I just don't think we want AI to take. You know, there are lots of things that people enjoy doing, that people find rewarding, like being a musician, like writing and so on. And I would rather that human beings kept those jobs. So I think it's unlikely that AI is simply going to take everybody's job and create this unimaginable world in which none of us ever have to work before. Or to put it another way, I think it's going to be a long time before a robot can come in your house and tidy up and clean up for you or cook you a meal to order or do anything like that. Now, listen, Mike, I get a lot of questions sent to me on the show from people listening. And and one came through the other day. So I just thought I would tickle your brain on this one from Samarth, who wants to know, why can't AI feel emotion like human beings? This may come as a shock to you, but we are, in fact, great apes. Our closest genetic relatives are the great apes, orangutans, gorillas, chimpanzees. Uh, And it's not that long ago in evolutionary terms that we diverged from them. And we live in a world of great apes where we experience things with those great apes. We actually live in the world we experience things. AI's chat GPT's never experienced anything. It can describe things to us. It can tell us what a cup of tea tastes like. Uh, It can tell us what uh, orange juice tastes like. But it's never experienced those things. It's never tasted orange juice. It's never had a cup of of tea. And so, you know, AI is fundamentally limited in that respect. Uh, and if, for that reason, it's fundamentally different to you and I. It's never experienced anything. You will be touching on these and no doubt loads more stuff in the Royal Institution's Christmas lectures this year. Just tell us, Mike, about a few things that you'll be looking at. The first lecture, we're going to look at what AI is and how it actually works. So we're going to look at neural networks, for example, and we'll see some very cool demos of neural networks and how they're trained. And that's going to take us up to ChatGPT, how it works. And we're going to do some demos with the kids in the audience so that they understand what's going on under the hood of ChatGPT. 
Uh, in lecture two, we're going to look at the way that we encounter AI in our lives, the many ways that we encounter AI and we just don't realize that we encounter it. So we're going to see some super cool demos of AI in games that are making computer games more realistic and more challenging and more exciting and more fun for the people that play them. And some lucky kids are probably going to come out of the audience and get to play on some AI computer games. We're going to see some of the applications in healthcare that I've talked about. And then the final lecture, we're going to tackle the hopes and fears. We're going to talk about, you know, how might things actually go wrong? How, what should we actually be concerned about? We're going to encounter some real AI robots, not the robots that you see in the movies, but some actual real AI robots. And then at the end, we're going to ask the big question, could AI actually be like us? And what would that mean? Well, there's so much to look through there. The uh, Christmas lectures will be on BBC4 and iPlayer if you miss anything right through late December. Uh, I'm very excited. Professor Mike Waldridge, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. While we still can, in our last episode before Christmas, let's take a look at the science of Christmas. We're learning about how tech plays a part in what we do around Christmas with our festive traditions with our good friend Santa Mori. And we're always looking for better and faster ways to help Santa get all the presents delivered. So let's see what tech has caught the eye this week. Santa Mori Science of Christmas. Hello, Santa Mori here. You know, the one in charge of all the science and technology here at the North Pole. We're always exploring science and trying out new technologies to get those presents delivered more quickly. I thought you might like to know some of the things that have caught my eye. One of the problems we have is the weight of all the toys. Certainly makes life hard for our reindeers. So we have been experimenting with a reversible thermodynamic processor, a sort of nano toy maker known as the Magic Sack. This creates toys for good girls and boys as Santa is travelling, significantly cutting down on the overall weight of the sleigh. The magic sack uses carbon-based soot from chimneys and chemicals you humans have put into the atmosphere to make the toys en route. We've also been looking at whether we can equip the reindeers with side-mounted jetpacks powered by cold fusion. We've discovered that these would need to be arranged in such a way to create a stable reindeer sleigh system. The reindeers would need to be equally spaced and weighted. Otherwise, the sleigh would veer to one side. Santa would use the reins not only to direct the heads of the reindeer, but also to direct the orientation of the jetpacks for precision flight. Early tests have been promising, although a few stunt reindeers did end up stuck on the top of the workshop roof. So a little more refinement needed there. Maybe one for next year. We have also been looking into using different materials in the body of the sleigh and the runners. One new idea is to use a honeycomb titanium alloy. This is very lightweight and 20 times stronger than anything we can make today. We've found that some new materials help the sleigh alter its shape slightly to improve its aerodynamics and allow it to cut through the air more efficiently. We're also working on the runners being able to tuck in during flight to make the sleigh more aerodynamic. They then spread out again to provide stability for landing on various surfaces, such as steeply pitched roofs. We are always on the lookout for new ideas to help Santa deliver a quicker, slicker service, so he can be back in time for breakfast. And what a breakfast that is! Santa Maury's Science of Christmas, with support from the Institute of Physics, the Royal Aeronautical Society, and the Institution of Engineering and Technology. Find out more at funkidslive.com slash Christmas. We'll have more from the Science of Christmas next year. 
And that is it for our Fun Kids Science Weekly podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you have anything science-y that you want answered on this show next week, make sure you leave it as a voice note for me on the free Fun Kids app or at funkidslive.com. You can listen to so many of our brilliant shows and podcasts on Google, Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your shows. You get more of them with bonus exclusive episodes too by subscribing to Fun Kids Podcast Plus. If you look at the Fun Kids website, actually, see what we've got going on. Very special things about Fun Kids Podcast Plus this Christmas. And Fun Kids, we're our children's radio station from the UK. Listen uh, all over the country on the free Fun Kids app at funkidslive.com. And if you've got a smart speaker, make sure you wake it up and say, play Fun Kids. Fun Kids.